I'm going to be sharing all sorts of things here this morning uh, because I sense the Lord just speaking and and just a lot of things coming together and it might take me longer to unpack all of it but share a few things with you Psalm 133 I think everybody knows this psalm where it says behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard and even Aaron's beard and went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing even life forevermore and the only thought I want us to get out of that psalm is this how many want to be in the place where God commands the blessing how many you want to be in the place where God commands the blessing we've already heard it this morning God has given a command to deliver you that's powerful I want to be in the place where God commands the blessing the requirement for that is to dwell together in unity that is the prerequisite if we find the heavens are closed if we find that the heavens appear brass if we think that our praise doesn't get past the roof sometimes and if there's a heaviness around sometimes maybe it's because there's lack of unity maybe because where there is unity the Lord commands the blessing I want to be in the place where God commands his blessing because I don't know about you but I'm tired of closed heavens tired of it be in the place where God commands his blessing look at Acts chapter 4 verses 31 to 33 Remember talking with Bill in June uh, a few weeks ago, and Bill mentioned this scripture, and I've been meditating on it. It's a powerful scripture. Acts 4.31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and spoke the word of God with boldness. But verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither said any of them that out of the things which he possessed was own, but they all had all things common. And the result of that unity, it goes on in verse 33, and with great power, where there is unity, the Lord commands the blessing. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace I like that too don't you and great grace was upon them all how do we experience great grace how do we experience that with authority the apostles preached the word how do we get to the place where the building shakes when we pray where there is unity, the Lord 
commands his blessing. That's a word from God. That is not me speaking, that is a word from God. Where there's unity, the Lord commands the blessing. He woke me up at quarter after five this morning and said, that's what I want you to say. I'll expand upon that on Wednesday night. We don't want to grieve in any way or shape or form the Holy Spirit. Again, talking with Bill and June, and Bill said something to me on, on the phone that I just I wrote it down. It was so good. How did it go? Oh, the power of an ungrieved Holy Spirit. Oh, I like that. Oh, the power of an ungrieved Holy Spirit. The world is yet to see the power of an ungrieved Holy Spirit. But in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, what is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4.30 And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. But the context, if you read it there in Galatians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, if you read the context of it, you know, verse number 29, right in front of it, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Only that which is good to the use of edifying, that he might minister grace unto the hearers. And the verse after it, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That's the context in how we keep ourselves from grieving the Holy Spirit. Oh, for the power of an ungrieved Holy Spirit. Where there is unity, the Lord commands the blessing. I'm going to go to the place where God commands His blessing. It's powerful. It's awesome. It's good. There are some principles here I want to share this morning about... What kind of work, what kind of church does God commit himself to, to show himself strong on behalf of that church? Anybody interested? What kind of church will God back it completely so that our actions are his actions? What kind of church does God fully commit his power to? Because I'm sure you'd be like me. You want to see revival. I'm sure you're like me. You want to see the power of God break out. I'm sure like me, you want to see people saved. Amen? I'm sure you want to see people healed. I'm sure you want to see demons cast out and bodies restored. I'm sure we want to see a move of God that will once again shake a nation. Anybody with me? Or are we happy with being small? Or do we want to see the will of God be done? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. That's where I'm headed. That's what my desire it really is. Four principles, I think, or four or five principles 
that we need to align ourselves up with to be the kind of people that God will say, that's what I'm after. Principle number one is this. We have to see the big picture. We have to see the big picture. If you turn to Ephesians 4 with me, and that same passage of Scripture, earlier on in the chapter, it talks about, verse 11, He gave some apostles, He gave some prophets, He gave some evangelists, and He gave some pastors and teachers. And five different giftings there. Five different anointings that are mentioned. And if the church is going to be all that God wants it to be, we need the expression of all of those gifts and all of those ministries. Would you agree with me? That we need all of these. But why does God give these ministries? Verse 12, for the perfecting or for the maturing of the saints, so that the saints can do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, and so on and so on and so on. But the last part of verse 16, it says, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. God's current goal is to build the church. God's current emphasis is to create a body for which his son, through which his son may express himself. Now that's an important principle here because if you're going to build yourself a physical house, How many know that you need many different tradesmen to build your house? You need your plumber. You need your electrician. You need your joiner, your carpenter. You need your roofer. You need the cement man. You need all the different different flooring guys, the decorators. You need all kinds of different skills to put your house together. Is that not correct? Would you hire a joiner to work for you but the joiner never looks at the blueprint. He's just going to build whatever inspires him on the spot. And then when you got the frame of the house up and it's time to get your electrician in, he doesn't bother seeing the blueprint. He says, I'm just going to do my own thing and, and what I think that would work and this would work. Would you build a house like that? Would anybody do that? I hope not. I hope not. No, everybody has got to see the blueprint. Everybody's building the same building. And that requires working together. It requires relationships. It requires everybody's in harmony with the blueprint. The goal of God is to build a body through his, for His Son. Now that's important because what happens is a lot of people with the gift, a ministry, an anointing, a call of God on their life tend to think that their call is what it's all about. The church does not exist for teachers. But the church needs teaching. The church doesn't exist for teaching. Teaching exists for the church. You follow what I'm saying there? It's not just a platform for people to get up and do seminars and teach. 
Teaching serves the church. The church does not serve teaching. The same with the gifts of the Spirit and uh, and the office of a prophet. The church doesn't exist for prophets. Prophets exist to serve the church. And the same with evangelism and outreach. And that's one of the things we're going to emphasize. The goal of evangelism is not to reach the lost. The goal of evangelism is to build the church. Is that right or not? Is that right or not? The goal of evangelism ultimately is to build the church. And how does an evangelist build the church? By evangelizing. He doesn't work separate from the blueprint. He doesn't work separate from the plan of God. The plan of God is to create a people for His pleasure, to create a body for His Son, to prepare a bride for His Son, and the evangelist has his part, the teacher has his part, and the prophet has his part, but we all got to work according to the blueprint. Otherwise, we're all just doing our own thing and nothing really gets built at the end of the day. The goal is to build the body of Christ. And we need to see the big picture. Because from eternity to eternity, according to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 11, there is an eternal purpose which is centered in Christ Jesus the Lord. And this is a whole seminar that I would like to teach, but it would take several hours to get through it all. But to see the blueprint from eternity to eternity. And it's all about Jesus. The Father loves His Son. And the Father has designed a body for His Son. And everything God does from eternity to eternity is to create this body for His Son. To create that body, He's given some people the gift of evangelism. To create that body, He's given some people the gift of the prophet. To create that body, He's given some people the gift of the teacher or the pastor or the apostle. To create that body, He's given the gifts of the Spirit to build it up and to edify it. But everybody's got to see what the goal is. Got to see the blueprint. And the blueprint is the creation of a body for His Son. Everything has got to focus that as its attention. That's the first principle. See the big picture. And every ministry has to be an expression of the body of Christ. God's not into lone rangers. Discovered that. God's not into lone rangers. He wants every ministry to be an expression of of the body of Christ, not just people out doing their own thing. Everything is from the body, and everything is for the body. That is a principle. Uh, We have to see the blueprint. The second, next very, very important principle, and for this, turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to read a story, just a few verses. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. This is a fascinating story. And it goes like this. Then spoke Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go you and your house, and sojourn wherever wherever you will sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall come also upon the land... For seven years. 
So the prophet prophesies a famine coming for seven years, and you need to physically leave the place. Verse number 2, it says, The woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she with her husband, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for the land. Now, it just so happened in verse 4 that the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me some stories about Elisha. I mean, you're his servant. Some of the things. I mean, they're fascinating stories. Could you tell me some of the stories about Elisha? Now, listen to this. In verse number 5, And it came to pass, as he was telling, talk about timing, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, that very woman whose son had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, there she is in person. I'm just talking about her and there she is. Well, verse number 6, and the woman asked, the king asked the woman, and she told him, and the king appointed a certain officer saying, all that you want will be back to you. What's my point in telling that story? In the kingdom of heaven, timing is everything. This is a principle. In the kingdom of heaven, timing is everything. Is there anybody here to think that God works too slow. Anybody? Far too slow. Anybody discover that? I've told you this before, and I'll tell it again because I like it. There's a banner on the wall that says, Jesus is never late. Signed, Lazarus. He's been in the grave for four days. But Jesus is never late. This has got to be one of the hardest tests that God's people go through is waiting for the timing of God because we're all convinced He's far too slow. All of us. But Jesus Himself worked according to the timetable of His Father. How many times do you read in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, My time has not yet come? Remember that? Jesus, why don't you do something about this wedding? And the response of Jesus... My time has not yet come. When his brother said, why don't you show yourself at the public at the feast, what did Jesus say? My time has not yet come. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3 gives us an important principle in the work of God. Though the vision tarries, wait for it. For it will surely come and it will not tarry. One of the principles I've had to learn in my own personal life, and I've had a few, lots of experiences, but one of the principles I've had to learn that God will work according to His timetable and I can't rush Him up as much as I want to rush Him. Until the time that your word comes. In Psalm 105, verse 19, and talking about Joseph from the book of Genesis, it says, And the word of the Lord tested him until the time that his word came. In other words, God has got a timetable and he has got a day when it, the, the promise will be fulfilled. But how long did Joseph have to wait for that to happen? 
The dream came when he was 17. He was 30 before he became prime minister of Egypt. And it was another nine years after that before his brothers bowed down before him. 22 years he waited for the fulfillment of that promise. Acts chapter 7 verse 17. It says, And the time for the fulfillment of the promise began to draw nigh. Timing is absolutely important. And there's a great reason for that. And the reason for the timing is because God has got to do a lot of work in our hearts. After He calls us, after He gives you a vision, after He places a burden in your heart, the burden is alive and it's burning on the inside of you for sure. And you're ready to take on the world. Little do we know how unprepared and ill-equipped we are for that. And God has got to do a work, and this takes time. He's got to do a work in our character, because there is a principle with God. Whether I agree with Him or not doesn't make any difference. This is the principle. And here's the principle. The worker, the character of the worker, is far more important than the work He does. And He will suspend His work if the character of the worker has not been made right. He'll let his work go unfulfilled. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not. And I don't know if I agree with it or not. But that's the case. And it's, you don't argue with it. That's just what the scripture teaches. The worker is far more important than the work. Because God doesn't want you to speak a message. He wants you to become the message. That word has got to conquer you. And there's a principle in Scripture, when God gives you a promise, God gives you a word, that it seems as if all hell is set against you to make it look like that word is completely impossible ever to come to pass. And in the process of time, God is changing us and changing us and changing us until we can become the person, listen to my word here, that God can trust 1 Thessalonians 2.4 that says God puts us to the test so he can trust us with the gift or the ministry he's called us to do. There is a testing and there is an earning of trust that has to take place with God before he commissions people. So we have to go according to God's timing. Now I'm going to give you some examples because in the scripture, because... We have to be in God's timing, and we can't rush it. How many know that if you rush ahead of God with the burden He's given you, but the time is not right, and you rush ahead, you actually create more problems for yourself? Is that not right? When Abraham rushed ahead of of God, instead of waiting for Isaac to be born, he rushed ahead, and what came along instead? An Ishmael. He rushed God's timing and he paid the consequences of that for the rest of his life. Because he tried to push God's will faster than God was in it. And then you've got the story of Moses. You know, here he is at 40 years of age, knowing that he's going to take on the, the Pharaoh and the whole nation of Egypt. And how does he do it? He does it in his own strength to start with. And he tried to rush God's timing about the call in his life. And what did it get him? It got him 40 years in the desert. We can't rush God's timing. How about King Saul? 
Did he try to rush God's timing? Where's Samuel the prophet? Too much time is going by. We need to get the sacrifice going. And his impatience got the better of him. And so he goes and does what he should not do. He, he assumed the office of the priest and he went and offered it up before God's timing. It cost him the kingdom. There is timing. I'll say it again. In the kingdom of heaven, timing is everything. Let God put it together. And so not only has he got to prepare us as the worker, but he also has to prepare the harvest that he's sending us to. Timing is correct. Now let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 16, after Paul had ministered in the region of Galatia and finished a great revival in Galatia, he doesn't know where to go, doesn't know what to do. All of a sudden he finds himself at loose ends as far as where should I go preach what should I do next and so Acts chapter 16 says he tried several things he tried to go in a place called Bithynia but the spirit said no don't go there so he tried to go in a place called Mysia but the spirit wouldn't allow him to go there now I need to ask a question doesn't God want people in Bithynia and Mysia to hear the gospel didn't he say go into all the world and yet the Holy Spirit is saying not at this point don't go there and don't go there instead as they're seeking God he gets a vision of a man in Macedonia saying come over and help us so it's surely gathering that the Lord had called us to go to Macedonia. We got in the boat, Paul says, and we went over there and got into a city called Philippi and we met people that God had set up for a divine appointment. That appointment was not set up in Mysia. It was not set up in Bithynia. It was set up in a place called Philippi. And they found some women who gathered at the river to pray. And here's the key. It says, and one of them's name was Lydia, whose heart the Lord had opened. And there you've got a prepared man going to a prepared place. Timing. It wasn't time for Mysia. It wasn't time for Bithynia. But it was time for Philippi. I like the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10. The man is praying on the rooftop, but he has this vision, and God's get a hold of his attention because there is a harvest to reap in a place called Joppa, but he's in a place called Caesarea, and he's on the rooftop and he's praying, and he has this vision of a great white sheet coming down, not once, not twice, but three times he gets this vision because God is about to ask him to do something that he would never as a Jew ever would do. And that is speak to a Gentile and certainly never go into his house. He's unclean, unclean, unclean. And as far as Peter is concerned, there's no harvest over there. No harvest there. But you know the story how at the ninth hour Cornelius was praying and he was giving alms and he was fasting. And the angel appears to him in a vision and gets very specific directions. Go to Caesarea, go to such and such a house. There's a man named Peter there. and Go get him, send for him and ask him to come back and he'll tell you what I want to tell you. That's an amazing story, isn't it? And so when Peter is getting this vision it's completely against everything he believed it's not his culture it's not his tradition it's not his way of doing things we don't deal with Gentiles but 
all that aside, my point is this. When Peter went out to preach, he preached to somebody that God had prepared to hear his message. How much time and money and effort do we spend upon people who are not prepared to hear? That's a good question. How much time and effort do we spend upon people who are not prepared to hear? God is preparing us, and He's also preparing the harvest that He's given us. And that's just how it works in Scripture. I like the story in Acts chapter 8 of a man named Philip. When there was uh, persecution in Jerusalem and the city, the church of Jerusalem gets emptied out. And Philip goes down into Samaria. And what was it about that man named Philip? What was it about Philip? Because he went into Samaria and revival broke out. He was casting out demons. He was healing the sick. There was great joy in that city. Even the Simon the sorcerer was fascinated by this. He said, boy, can I have that kind of power? And you know all that story. The Bible says there was great joy in that city. And people were being responding to the gospel. And people were being baptized in water. And there was a powerful revival and powerful move of God happen because a, a deacon went down to Philippi. You know why it was easy for Philip to reap a harvest? Do you know why it was easy? I'll tell you why. Because several years prior to that, Jesus met a woman at the well in that same place. And she talked to Jesus. And that woman went and spread the news about Jesus. And the seeds had been planted years before that. And they had years to germinate. Years to grow and develop in people. And then when Philip comes along with about that same Jesus, the place was prepared to receive it. And that takes time. And so in the kingdom of heaven, timing is everything. Amen? Do we, do, do you agree with me on that? Timing is everything. And a lot of times we get impatient and we want to rush the agenda of God and we start ticking boxes and we say, let's do this and let's do that. And while we wait for God's timing, sometimes the impatience in us really gets out there and sometimes our frustration gets out there and we get loose with our attitude and, and all sorts of types of things. And timing is a real test to the soul of a man. Timing is important. Another principle, we already touched on it briefly here, but we have to be led by the Spirit in all that we do. We can't come up with good ideas, let's try this and let's try that. We have to hear God. I believe in a God who speaks. Amen? Do you believe in a God who speaks? Have you woke up in the morning knowing before you're out of bed God spoke to you? That happened to me today. Knowing that God spoke to you. We have a God that speaks. And here is the principle. God directs the affairs of his own work. I don't. He does. He directs it. My job as a leader, any leader's job anywhere, is to hear the voice of God and follow it. Jesus is the great example for me. 
in this. Mark 1.35, it says, In rising a great while before day, Jesus found a solitary place to pray and to hear the voice of his Father. Because all the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus would say things like this, I haven't come to do my own will. The words that I speak, you know, they don't even come from me. They're the words of my Father. The doctrine that I speak is not even mine. It's what I heard my Father say to me. The works that I do, it's not me. But it's the Father that is in me that has done them. I only say the things that I hear my Father say. And I only do the things that I see my Father do. In other words, Jesus never initiated any ministry on His own. He spent time in prayer, seeking fellowship with His Father, communion with His Father. And in the process of prayer and communion with His Father, the Father showed Him this, the Father showed Him that, and He went out and did it. But He never did anything on His own without first seeing it from His Father. That's how it works. Because God is not going to bless my efforts. What I need to do is find out what God is doing and work with Him. God will direct the affairs of His own business. Which means what? It means my first priority, any church's first priority, is pray, pray, and pray. Because hearing the voice of God takes time to learn that discipline. You've got to do a lot of hearing before you know you're hearing God. It takes a lot of time to learn. But our first responsibility is the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting and the prayer meeting. We need to spend more time in prayer than working. How do you like that one? But it's true. You need to spend more time in prayer than in working. The older I get, and I'm getting there now, the older I get, the more experience I glean, the more I have been able to travel and see and witness things. I'm coming to this conclusion. I need to spend more time in prayer in my life now than I ever have. Because the work is too big, too massive, and I need to hear God on every detail every detail and so I purposely some people might think I'm slow when things when things going to get happening whatever I am purposely waiting for God to speak I'm waiting for God to give the initiative I'm waiting for that moment when this is God says like he did this morning God says now is the time to do this waiting for that moment because in the kingdom of heaven Timing is everything, and we must be led by the Spirit. How are we going to do outreach? Well, let's try this. Let's do this. Let's try this. No, I'm not going to try anything. I'm not going to try anything. I'm going to hear God speak. I'm going to hear God speak and let Him direct the affairs of His own work. We have to be led by the Spirit. I believe we can be led by the Spirit. I believe it's normal for every New Testament believer to hear the voice of God. 
I believe God wants us to baptize us in the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit and fill us 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 with the Holy Spirit because God is a speaking God. And by His Spirit, He will direct His own work and He will speak into the very hearts and the depths and you're going to know that you know that you know that God has spoken to you. Must be Spirit-led. And that's true of Jesus himself. And another principle here is once we have heard the voice of God, I mean, you take a lot of prayer to hear the voice of God, and once you hear the voice of God, you know what our response is? More prayer. Why more prayer? Because what God leads us to do is not possible in our human strength. Not possible. If you can do it in your own strength, it probably wasn't God who told you to do it. Not possible in our human strength. God always asks us to do things that are beyond our ability, beyond our potential, and require anointing. The work of God is not carried out by the arm of flesh. It has to be His Spirit. It has to be His anointing. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage. It's the power of God. And we just have to wait and wait and wait. Unless the Lord build the house, we labor in vain that build it. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. My example again is Jesus. My example again is Jesus. His own words, Luke 4.18 Quoting Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me. And everything He did, the opening of the blinds, the setting the captives free, the healing the broken hearts, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, everything He did was by the anointing. That's amazing to me. He's my example. And He gave instructions to His church. I'm about to send you out, but don't you dare go out until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Until you're flowing in the things of the Spirit. Don't you dare go out. Because we can't do things in our own power. If I by the Spirit of God cast out devils, then you know the kingdom has come. But it's by the Spirit that we bring the message of the kingdom to a lost and a dying world. It takes the Holy Spirit uh, to do that. Again, a good example is Moses. At 40 years of age, he tried to accomplish the will of God in his own strength. The record of Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7 preaching about Moses said Moses brought up in the Pharaoh's house was a man who was mighty in word and mighty in deeds. He was well learned. He was well schooled. He had resources behind him like you and I can't even begin to imagine. And in his own resources he tried to fulfill the will of God. He kills an Egyptian with his own hands. It didn't work. It backfired. And he got the next four decades of his life, and that's a long time to learn. Four decades of his life where he had to unlearn the first 40 years of his life. It takes a long time to unlearn some habits. And he had to unlearn the first four decades of his life. And when could God use him? When he was able to say, well, who am I that I can go? The man who was mighty in word and mighty in deed had to be reduced to become a man at the burning bush who said, Who am I? That's an important principle. 
That's an important principle. The work of God is not done in human ability. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke. And the last principle I want to share with you is about motives of the heart. There is only one acceptable motive with God, and that is, He must be glorified. And I've discovered that God will not share His glory. He must be glorified. Jesus gave a great promise to His disciples at the Last Supper. He says, you've never asked anything in My name, but now after I'm going to be gone, you can ask in My name. You can go to the Father yourself. You don't need Me to pray for you. You can go to the Father yourself. And if I ask anything in My name, I will do it. But there's a condition that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That has got to be the motive in our heart. Everything we do cannot be for recognition. One of the hardest lessons I think the human heart has got to learn is to do things in secret and be content that God will never tell anybody what you've done. That's a hard one. I want some recognition. Can't they tell I was fasting for a week? You know, you know, just trying to drop the hint in a conversation with somebody. You know, while I was fasting last week. To do things without no recognition whatsoever. You see, for great faith, in, in Luke chapter 17, the disciples are with Jesus. Lord, increase our faith. Anybody ever pray that? Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord says, well, if you have faith like you're in a mustard seed. But then he immediately qualifies it by telling a story. And the story is that there are servants out there working all day in the field. You can find this in Luke 17. And they're working all day in the field, and they're hot, and they're sweaty. And then the master comes home. And after they put in the full day of work, the master comes home and says, Well, get my supper. Get my meal ready. Well, I've already put in a whole day. But because they're servants, they do the will of the master, they get the, the meal ready. And then the attitude of the servants is this. We have only done what is required of us. And if there's no thanks, there's no thanks. We've only done what is required of us. In other words, it doesn't matter if we're seen or not. Hide me behind the cross. My name's not important. What's important is Jesus. What's important is the Father would be glorified in the Son. That's what's important. Moses was incensed that God's honor had been blasphemed at the story of the golden calf. He came down there in a blaze of anger. Phineas, in Numbers chapter 25, was incensed at the sexual immorality that was taking place in Israel. Right at the door of the tabernacle, he was incensed, and he did something about it. He got a spear, and he ran the man and woman through. And God says, well done. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. But the whole idea was, is the passion that God would be honored. The passion that God would be glorified. Elijah was incensed that 700 prophets of Baal would challenge the Lord. He was incensed that the nation was divided between Baal and God. How long will you halt between two opinions? And in his weak moments, he makes this confession of what he thought of himself. Anyway, I'm the only one who's been zealous for you. But he was zealous for the Lord. 
he was offended when God's honor was not lifted up. And there's got to come into my heart that same thing. You know, God's glory must be the priority. God's glory must be the priority. So the issues are, are unity is where the Lord commands the blessing. The issue is we've got to see the big picture that God is building and not just run independent ministries. We've got to see the blueprint of what God's doing. The issue is timing is in God's hands and we can't rush Him as much as we'd like to rush what He's doing. The issue is we have to be led by the Spirit. He directs the affairs of His own business. I don't direct Him. He's the director. He directs Him. The issue is, once He does give direction, we have to wait on Him for divine enablement and empowerment because it's not in our strength that anything can be done. And the issue is the glory of God. And over the years, I've observed these principles. And I believe if we embrace these principles then we can become the people to God that he says, my full power will back that because they're not doing their will anyway. This is my heart. This is my will. So forgive me for the repetition, but I want to be in the place where God commands the blessing. And I believe if we embrace those principles, that's the place where God commands His blessing. I want to be a prepared man for a prepared season, for a prepared harvest. Amen? I'll say it again. I want to be a prepared man for a prepared season, for a prepared harvest. And to get there, we pray. And we pray. And we pray. And we keep pressing in prayer. Hallelujah. Amen. God is good.